This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, as Dr. Langley was saying, um, my project is focused on uh, soil microbial communities and how human activities affect these communities. Um, so originally, my project was entitled Does Nitrogen Addition Irreversibly Alter Soil Community um, Microbial Community Composition and Function? However, in light of some recent findings that we've had, um, I decided to re-entitle my talk, actually. <laughs> well, now it's called um, Nitrogen Drives Changes in Community only in combination with soil disturbance. So, to begin with some background information, all organisms require nitrogen, as many of you are probably aware. So, nitrogen um, is what makes up many of the biomolecules in our bodies and in the bodies of all organisms. So, um, things like proteins and DNA um, have much nitrogen in them. However, although the atmosphere is about 80% nitrogen, the nitrogen gas in the atmosphere is in a form that's not accessible to organisms. So we need microbes to take the atmospheric nitrogen gas and fix it, converting it into forms like ammonium and nitrate that other organisms can use. So this gives plants the nitrogen sources that they need. And then when we eat plants, we, we get the nitrogen that we need. So historically, the processes of uh, bacteria fixing the nitrogen from the atmosphere and then returning it to the atmosphere in N2 gas were balanced, so it allowed this balanced cycle of nitrogen um, and growth on, across all trophic levels that was sustained yet limited. However, in the past about 150 years, uh, since the beginning of the industrial age, humans have completely offset this natural balance of the nitrogen system um, by loading ecosystems with tons of nitrogen. So this is primarily in three different forms. The first is through a process called Haber-Bosch industrial fixation, and this makes the um, fertilizers that are used in agriculture. Secondly, um, farmers tend to preferentially cultivate crops that are associated with microbes that fix nitrogen, and this adds a lot, of, lot more nitrogen to soils. Lastly, fossil fuel combustion uh, contributes a lot of nitrogen to the biosphere um, because combusting fossil fuels releases nitrous oxides into the atmosphere, and these are then deposited um, into the biosphere. So all of this human addition of nitrogen has caused current rates of nitrogen deposition and fixation to be more than double their rates um, from before the industrial era. So this has saturated many uh, previously nitrogen-limited ecosystems. So the results of this nitrogen saturation, this greater nitrogen availability, has caused, causes generally um, more growth. But it also picks winners and losers because some organisms um, are actually harmed by nitrogen. They can't make use of it or it's toxic to them, whereas others are able to make use of this greater nitrogen availability to grow very rapidly. Um, and you see this in plants, in, in weeds, um, and things like invasive plants. So here there's a picture of Ridley Creek State Park, and you see all of these invasive plants over here um, that have invaded because of the nitrogen addition. And they've just taken over. So we know that this is true for plants, but there's an indication that this is also true for microbes, and that there's a parallel of these weedy plants 
um, in the microbial community. So in terms of microbes, the weedier ones that are able to make use of more nitrogen uh, to grow and divide very rapidly are known as copiotrophs. Um, and so copiotrophs are limited by the typical nitrogen limitation of ecosystems, but when given more nitrogen, they take off and come to dominate um, microbial communities, um, completely outnumbering what are known as oligotrophs, which are more enzymatically complex microbes that are able to sustain their growth even when there's not a lot of nitrogen. So the results of this copiotrophic takeover kind of is that there's initially a burst of growth. However, all of this growth uses up the simple carbon in the soil, which is known as labile carbon. And then the microbes, the copiotrophic microbes that are there, because they're enzymatically very limited, they can't make use of the complex carbon that's left in the soil. Um, and so they're left without an energy source and their numbers start to decline so that you see abundance declines and then you also see declines in the amount of uh, CO2 that they produce, which is their respiration rates, it's kind of like our breathing, like microbes breathing. Um, so that is what ultimately occurs upon nitrogen addition. So I wanted to um, take this copiotrophic hypothesis and use it as a framework um, to formulate some sort of research and see how microbial communities that have become used to these higher levels of nitrogen, how they will, res will respond when then they get less nitrogen, so to lower levels of nitrogen. And the applicability is the fact that in our area, in southeastern Pennsylvania, we expect to see lowered levels of nitrogen in the soils in the future um, because of more and more uh, restrictions upon nutrient pollution. So I wanted to look specifically at how microbial communities would respond to this lowered nitrogen in terms of their function, so their respiration, how much CO2 they're producing, uh, their abundance, so how many microbes are there, and their composition, the composition of the community of microbes, so what microbes are there. Um, <coughs> so what I predicted at the outset of this study was that nitrogen-treated or nitrogen-accustomed microbes um, will perform best in the conditions that they've acclimated to. So when you take away nitrogen from these communities, I thought that they wouldn't perform as well in terms of respiration, so I thought they would respire less and that their biomass would also decrease. So I went about um, looking into answering this question through a two-phase incubation experiment. So what this meant was that I constructed these little pods called microcosms. Um, and in the first phase, I made nine of these different microcosms. And I filled them with soil that I got from Ridley Creek State Park. So the soil that I got, I homogenized. And I, so I added the same soil, 20 grams of it, to each of these nine microcosms. And then I separated them into three different treatment groups. So a control treatment group, a low nitrogen, and a high nitrogen treatment group. And I added um, DI water, low nitrogen solution, and a high nitrogen solution respectively to these three different groups. And I added those treatments three times a week. Um, and the high nitrogen and kind of the low nitrogen treatment as well were supposed to mimic the levels of nitrogen pollution that we have seen um, in the past about 150 years. So um, that phase one continued for about 10 weeks, at the end of which time I took a sample from each of the microcosms and stored it so I could do DNA extraction later. Um, and then I performed what's known as a reciprocal transplant. So I constructed 27 new like little pods for them. I filled them with soil, just like in the first phase. 
But in this phase, I autoclaved the soil, which means I sterilized it. So there were no living organisms in the soil. And then I took each of the original nine microcosms from the first phase um, and took a small amount of the microbes that were present in each of those mi microcosms and added it to three of the phase two microcosms. And then each one of these three phase two microcosms received a different treatment. And treatments were the same as in phase one um, and were also added three times a week. So you can see in this diagram, just a representation of what I did. So what I measured, um, first and foremost, I measured function in terms of respiration rates, so CO2 production, like I mentioned previously, um, and this was done using an infrared gas analyzer. Secondly, I looked at microbial abundance, so I um, looked at relative microbial biomass, which I quantified using substrate-induced um, respiration, which I'll explain later. Um, and lastly, I looked at community composition, so what microbes are there, and I did this by extracting DNA and sending it off for sequencing, and then we did some statistical analyses of the results we got back. So what did I find? Um, in terms of respiration, I saw that in phase two, the nitrogen treatments tended to accelerate respiration. However, the accelerations of respiration were not significant. Um, in terms of biomass, the phase two nitrogen treatments actually ended up decreasing microbial biomass in a significant manner. Um, in terms of community composition, we um, analyzed the community composition in a few different ways, but first we looked at the diversity. So how different, uh, how many different groups of microbes are there present in a microcosm or in a treatment group? So we saw, um, as you can see in the left-hand panel, that uh, the phase one nitrogen treatments had essentially no effect on the diversity of um, the different treatment groups. Um, however, in phase two, as you can see, by the significantly lower bars um, in the low and high treatment groups, nitrogenation in phase two um, tended to decrease diversity. There was also a drastic decrease in diversity between phases one and two. Next, we performed what are known as ordinations. So this allowed us to look at, to compare the communities between the first two phases. So um, what you're seeing in the right-hand panel is different microbial groups at what's known as the order level of classification. Um, and then on the left-hand panel, you're seeing um, dots that represent different, different treatment groups and different samples. So the location of a, samples, a sample on this axis corresponds to what communities are present in that sample. So these ones all the way over here are from phase one, and you can see that their communities correspond to the communities that are represented on the right. So the distance also between points on this leftmost panel um, shows you how different the communities in the different points are. So you see that the phase one communities are clustered together, they're very similar, but they're spread pretty far apart from the phase two communities, so they're very different from the phase two communities. This is another ordination that was done on just the phase two communities um, between the different treatment groups, and so you see that there's a pretty large uh, distance between the points from the samples in the control treatment group and those from the high treatment group. And the large distance indicates that those communities were very different. Lastly, um, we looked to see if there was any sort of relationship between um, the response of a microbial um, order to the addition of nitrogen and their response 
to what's what we call transplantation, so um, what occurred between phases one and two. Um, and we define this as a disturbance. So first, the top panel shows the response of each of these orders of um, bacteria to transplantation. So when you took the small amount of the community and put it in the autoclave soil, and then down here you see the response to nitrogen. And we actually saw that there was um, no relationship between those two different responses. So this allowed us to conclude three separate things, three main points, I would say. Um, first, that nitrogen availability alone has little effect on microbial community structure or function. So as we saw, um, just adding nitrogen didn't cause any change in the community uh, diversity. So we didn't see the expected shift to a more coziotroph-dominated community as we had expected. The second conclusion, though, was that disturbing a community by taking a small amount of it and transplanting it into soil that doesn't have any living organisms in it that that significantly reduces the community diversity. And also that disturbance, that transplantation, along with nitrogen, um, causes an interactive effect of causing an even greater decrease in community diversity. However, we also concluded that a group's nutrient requirements, the copiotroph-oligotroph distinction that I talked about at the beginning, can't really be used to predict um, a group's resilience to disturbance because of this lack of response we saw between um, transplantation and nitrogen addition. So you might be wondering what the applicability of a study that focuses on something as small as these little microbes would be. So I would say first and foremost that nutrient pollution and land disturbance go hand in hand. So often when we see um, added nutrients in terms of maybe fertilizer, you'll have um, a land disturbance that goes with it, such as a conversion of land to agricultural fields. Um, and so then predicting the implications of these combined or of these factors for impacted ecosystems depends importantly upon understanding the combinatory effect of disturbance and nitrogen addition upon microbial communities. So you might still be wondering why should we worry about these microscopic organisms that can grow and die in a ball without us even noticing? Well, even though they're small, microbes are unbelievably abundant. In one single teaspoon of soil, there's over a billion microbes. Um, and these microbes perform very important functions, like I mentioned towards the beginning. Um, their cycling of nutrients and the nitrogen cycle, the carbon cycle, helps to uphold the entire biosphere. So without microbes to perform these cycles um, or to act in these cycles, we wouldn't be able to have the nitrogen, carbon, and other elements that we need. Um, so if, as our results potentially indicate, um, human actions such as nutrient pollution and land disturbance are eliminating numerous microbial species. Nitrogen pollution might have long-lasting impacts that last far beyond just the pollution itself. Even when the pollution's over, if we have eliminated these microbial groups, um, there might still be impacts. Um, and as I was saying, there could be impacts upon the nitrogen cycle and also upon the carbon cycle. Um, the vast microbial biomass that I talked about um, contribute substantially to the amount of carbon that's released um, through soil respiration. So every year there's about 60 gigatons of carbon released from soils. Um, and to give you some sort of idea of what that number means, the amount of carbon that's released through fossil fuel combustion is one-tenth of that amount. So microbes help to or cause the release of about 10 times the amount of CO2 into the atmosphere than does fossil fuel combustion. So as you're probably aware, CO2 is a very important greenhouse gas that can contribute to global warming. 
So if we're affecting these microbial communities in ways um, that affect how they respire, um, this could affect how much carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere and thus ultimately um, could contribute or um, to global warming. Um, with that, I would like to thank Dr. Adam Langley, my wonderful advisor, for all his guidance and support in my project. And I'd also like to thank the entirety of the Chapman and Langley Labs for all their help. And now, any questions? So when you're adding this nitrogen, uh, low or high levels uh, yeah. to the soil, so what, are, what is the basal level that you're adding to? And um, how do you know that's not already kind of saturated in some fashion? Yeah, that was what we were, um, something that we were thinking <coughs> about. The low nitrogen treatment is supposed to just mimic what is actually there, so to sustain the amount of nitrogen that they're receiving. Um, I guess now out in the environment in Ridley Creek State Park, um, whereas the high nitrogen treatment was supposed to be loading even more nitrogen on top, and then the control is supposed to leach the nitrogen out of the soil. So it could be that the low nitrogen treatment or the, like, that's kind, that's almost more of a control treatment, like the baseline um, was already at a saturating, saturating level, sorry. So the high nitrogen treatment might not be doing much in addition to that. So I guess it was more looking between the control with the leaching the nitrogen out and then um, the other nitrogen treatment. Thanks for your presentation. Um, my question is, did you encounter anything that really surprised you throughout the process? And if so, what was it? Um, I guess kind of like I said at the beginning that I expected to see um, these shifts in communities in their nutrient um, requirements, their carbon use strategies, so copia trough to oligotroph, but we didn't really see those expected shifts. We more saw um, that it was less of nitrogen affecting communities um, by itself, but that you needed this initial disturbance and then the nitrogen on top of it to cause these community shifts. So I thought, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe the decreases in diversity would be less extreme if you started out with a less diverse community, so you wouldn't see as much of like a bottleneck when you took the inocula um, and disturbed it or transplanted it between phases one and two. <laughs> so, so you sequence all that. I mean, you have all the sequences that you compared. So, yeah. so were these sequences from the soil before adding um, the nitrogen? They were actually after. So it was after, after the um, phase one and after phase two. But what was kind of, why we did that and we didn't have it just from the original soil was that the phase one was more of just a conditioning phase. It was to add the levels of nitrogen that we wanted to the soil um, so that the high level of nitrogen would it would kind of be like getting soil from a high level of nitrogen ecosystem. Um, so those were like our starting communities, essentially. That's why we only looked at that starting community and then the end of phase two, which was the tr kind of the treatment community. Yeah. 
the other part of my question is, did you see uh, some sequences for the enzymes you're talking about in there? I mean, uh, there are some hydrogen fixing enzymes, for example, in these microbial communities. Were there changes? We actually didn't look into that, but that's a, that's a really good idea. I have read um, on like enzymatic changes that are caused by nitrogen addition, which like obviously you'd expect um, communities that fix nitrogen to be less prevalent and that um, enzymes that are involved in that to be less prevalent in the soil. Um, but then there's also nitrogen can by itself kind of um, inhibit other non-nitrogen related enzymes. So it would be interesting to look into that. Yeah. Um, <coughs> given the initial comments from your advisor about the sprawling nature of this topic, what was it about it that intrigued you to get you started in focusing on this as your senior project? And then also, uh, how did you go about doing the literature review, the one that was apparently so impressive? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what got me interested in this was its applicability, like I was talking about at the end, because uh, nitrogen pollution or nutrient pollution in general is a problem that we're encountering now, and we're encountering it along with a lot of other um, environmental disturbances. So just seeing how that would affect um, some like microbes, which are something that oh, your general population doesn't really know or care much about, um, I thought that would be interesting. And then in terms of conducting um, the literature survey, I just I actually, coming into this year, knew next to nothing about this field, so I just kind of dove into the literature and started reading everything that I could and taking notes on it. And then through that, I guess these patterns kind of appeared. Um, and I could kind of come up with a coherent um, idea of maybe what nitrogen was, what changes nitrogen was causing. What strategy did you use for diving in this concept? Oh, um, I literally, Googled <laughs> uh, changes in microbial communities due to nitrogen addition and use a lot of the um, resources online that the library has, the different journals that they subscribe to. Okay. Thank you so much to our fabulous presentation. So, on behalf of the library, the Center for Undergraduate Research and Fellowships, and the Honors Program, I would like to present you with the 2016 Salvi Scholars Award. Thank you so much. So thank you very much. Congratulations. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bowen, and thank you, everyone, for coming today. So as Dr. Bowen hinted at, uh, the focus of my research is to look at these animal psychics to see if they help reinforce the problematic gender roles that we have in society by narrowing female characters into this domestic and passive sphere while promoting males to a more position of dominance and power. So with my research, I looked at four films. And I originally divided these films into three sections. The first section was traditional films, which is films that are seen as stereotypical represent representations of gender, which is seen in Cinderella and the animal sidekicks that are included. The next section was transitional films, and these films are supposed to have more examples of female independence, and this was seen in The Little Mermaid and Mulan. And then finally, there's current films that have to deal with more female empowerment. They're supposed to have complete female empowerment that is supposed to be seen in Frozen. But after reviewing my films, I realized the analysis is better divided 
doing Cinderella and the Little Mermaid versus Mulan and Frozen because the different groupings of these films have similar examples of gender stereotypes and roles that allow a better analysis in the research. Um, so here's a quick story in my literature review. I divided into four sections. The first looked at how Disney's main medium is animation in the Disney princess genre. The second is the, all the current research that shows social and gender hierarchies that do exist in Disney animation. Uh, the next is how Disney uses the tool of anthropomorphism in their princess films. And finally, one of the main points of my literature review was looking at gender scholar Julia Wood's analysis on verbal and nonverbal masculine and feminine communications that I used in my analysis. Uh, with my research, I did a textual analysis using the methodology of a feminist rhetorical critique. And I chose this because it highlights that power and dispower between uh, males and females that I wanted to look at with my animal interactions. Um, so with my research questions, the first one looks at more of how the animal psychic interactions with the princesses and the princes uh, reinforce uh, different gender roles that actually disfavor the female characters. And while the second research question looks specifically at those animal characters in relation to whether the male animal is communicating more feminine or masculine communication practice, how that impacts the princess's responses to them. So in my in-depth analysis, I first looked at each film individually. I did this by first describing the animal character's physical features, their personality, and then their relationships with the animal, the, with the princes or the princesses. And then after reviewing the films multiple and multiple times, I chose three to four representative scenes per film or certain sections of the film to look at to really help me to understand the different gender hierarchies that are occurring in those scenes. And I purposely chose each of these scenes because they either reflected or conflicted with the gender themes that I explored in my literature review. So once I looked at the films individually, I looked at the films across all four that I studied to see if there's any patterns that existed between the different gender roles, stereotypes, and communication practices of those animal sidekicks. So after my analysis, I came up with five different themes that had to deal with the uh, gender stereotypes and roles of these animal sidekicks that are listed here. Um, so I'm going to go through my themes now. So the first theme shows how the female role is directly linked to the domestic role. So the main female characters are all being shown as a wife, as a mother, or as a seamstress. And so while it appears that the females have power in this domestic role, in this domestic sphere, because they themselves are the only one that know how to successfully perform these tasks, they're actually confined within these roles. They're physically, mentally, and emotionally limited to only being able to perform these tasks, which limits their independence and only equates their identity to these household roles. And ultimately, since the domestic sphere exists within an area, an overall society that is controlled by males, these females inadvertently are only given power within the domestic sphere because the males are allowing them to have it. So here's a short scene from uh, 
like this scene is showing that females do have agency. They're the ones that know how to sew, but they're only confined into this role. They're actually never allowed to leave the attic, which is seen as the domestic sphere in the film. While as you can see, Jack and Gus, the male animal sidekicks, can explore the entire home in the scene where you saw them going through the walls to go downstairs to get the trimming. And so when you heard the female say, leave the sewing to the women, you will get some trimming, the female's actually trying to take control of the domestic sphere, saying what the males can and cannot do. But as you saw, when Jack and Gus decided, hey, I want to help out with the dress now, with them cutting the dress themselves, the female can only jump out of the way and give him a dirty look. She cannot physically say, no, go away again, you're not allowed to be here. She can only express nonverbal distaste. So ultimately, the, it's the males that have this control in this domestic sphere. Uh, this theme looks at how the male animal sidekicks are continually trying to hide examples of stereotypical feminine expressions, whether it be weakness, emotion, vulnerability, and sensitivity. And this directly correlates with Julia Wood's analysis of the number one theme of manhood in today's society, which is do not be female. So when these male animal sidekicks are exhibiting any feminine behavior, they immediately try to counter it with overtly masculine behavior of strength, dominance, and control. And this idea actually increases as each film progresses. So in the chronological order of my four films, as each subsequent film was finished, there was actually more examples of animal sidekicks trying to hide their feminine behavior. So as a result, Gin Disney is dichotomizing gender. They're trying to separate the appropriate uh, male and female behavior, which then ultimately values masculinity over femininity because the males are going through such great length to hide that feminine nature. So here's a short scene from Mulan that illustrates how uh, Mushu is first introduced to Mulan. Cow! 
So in terms of masculine appearance and strength, Mushu is more associated with being feminine because of his tiny size. So that stereotypically makes him be perceived as weak and not as important. So to counter this feminine expression, he tries to be appearing very large and dominating as seen through the theatrics of the smoke and the flames. However, when he then reveals his feminine size, Mulan does not take him seriously. She slaps him uh, and she thinks that he's not going to be her true leader. So Mushu must prove his manliness and strength by listing all the positive abilities and qualities he has and then even being directly verbally aggressive towards Mulan by yelling at him, yelling at her. So in reverse of this, Mulan is only able to listen and accept Mushu as her leader when he successfully counters that femininity by showing that masculine dominance and control over her. Um, so even though each Disney princess film has a female protagonist as the main character, uh, it's still upheld that males are typically seen as the dominant leaders while females are the passive followers. Now this is seen in uh, male animal sidekicks when they're given more active and physical strength roles such as rescuers, while the females are continually shown as this damsel in distress, which makes them be viewed as more subordinate and submissive to their animal sidekicks. And this is seen when the females actually need their male animal psychics to achieve their happily ever ever, whether it is a husband or a sense of independence. So for example, Cinderella and Ariel need their male animal psychics to be rescued in the final rescue scene in order for them to gain their husband. And Mulan needs Mushu in order to gain independence by entering the male camp. But without Mushu, Mulan would have never entered the camp. Um, so while it's clear that the males are the leaders in the earlier films. Uh, in the later films, it's subtly shown this male leadership and male control by the females, princesses' actual lack of control and leadership over an animal sidekick. So here's a short scene from Frozen. You have friends who are love experts. I'm not buying it. Stop talking. No, 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 no. I'd like to meet these. No, but you. In that scene, you see that, um, yes, Anna helps to save Kristoff when she throws the fire at the wolves, but in reality, she only has that leadership when she's in that seat of dominance in the 
card, so one juice positioned on the your left side of the card. And that's because that is seen as like a male leadership role in the driver's seat. So when we're looking at really the male leadership over an animal sidekick, Anna does not have that leadership. When she tells Sven when to jump over the cliff, Christoph immediately counters it by saying, you don't tell him what to do, I do. Then he manhandles her, throws her onto Sven's back, and cuts the cord of when they to jump over the cliff, and that allows him to successfully outrun the wolves. So Anna clearly has this lack of power over an animal sidekick. So she lacks agency to be that leadership and has to be a follower in that scene. And that shows she doesn't have that ability to be a successful leader for an animal sidekick, unlike Kristoff, who as a male can be in that leadership position. Um, this theme looks at how males are controlling the actions and identities of voiceless characters. So this is seen when the princes are controlling their voiceless male animal sidekicks, such as Eric in Little Mermaid controlling his voiceless sheepdog, Max, and as in the previous scene, Kristoff controlling his voiceless ranger, Sven. And then the other side of this is that the male animal sidekicks who are linked to a princess, they directly control their princesses. And that way, a connection is created between the princess animal sidekick and the princesses because they're both viewed as examples of voicelessness and subordinate characters where their actions, behaviors, and identities are directly controlled by males. Um, so here's a short clip from The Little Mermaid that shows how Ariel is controlled by her animal sidekick, Sebastian, similar to how Eric controls his animal sidekick, Max. When Ariel chose to become human, she lost her agency and independence that she had as a mermaid, 
and that allows her to be more easily controlled by her animal sidekick, Sebastian. So in a previous scene not shown, uh, Sebastian is giving Ariel advice on how to seduce a man by puckering her lips and batting her eyelash. Pretty much he's telling her to be silent and to just highlight her beauty in order to get a man's attention. So when Scuttle's trying to help her out, Ariel really can do nothing. She's just voiceless, subordinate, and just has to sit there and wait for a man to try to save her, as seen with Sebastian trying to set the mood in the song Kiss the Girl. So when you think of the song, you think of it's, oh, it's a love story, a happy, a first kiss. But in reality, Sebastian's directly controlling Ariel's body behaviors of when she's allowed to kiss this man. And it's actually defining Ariel's identity in relation to an object to be sold to Eric, similar to a prostitute being sold by a pimp to a customer. And you don't usually think of that when you look at this song, but it is a hidden dimension that's included in it. Um, since the Disney Princess franchise began in 1938, it appears that the Disney films have gotten more progressive with the princess characters. However, as you saw through all the themes that I just went through, uh, the female empowerment independence is continually <coughs> limited, weakened, or even lost because of this animal psychic interaction and control. And in addition, the princesses aren't even trying to challenge this male control over their lives. Instead, they're upholding these unequal gender relations because they're just accepting of it and doing nothing to stop it. Um, so this is showing that Disney is able to control the perception that they're being more progressive, they're including more feminine power, while still upholding the existence of a hegemonic society that values masculinity over femininity as seen through the animal sidekick interactions. So I just want to quickly summarize my research through my research questions. So in relation to research question one, I found that the interactions between the animal sidekicks, princes, and princesses did uh, uphold a gender and social hierarchy that disfavored females. And this was seen through the areas that the females' characters were limited to the domestic sphere. The male animal sidekicks were seen as leaders and controllers and rulers over the females' lives and that the females needed these male animal psychics to achieve a happily ever after us or any sense of empowerment. And in relation to research question two, I found that when the animal psychics exhibited more feminine features, they were viewed as unimportant, unsuccessful, and they didn't have any control over their princesses. However, when they had those masculine behavior of dominance and power, they were, had direct control over the females and they were successful in all their goals and missions they had to accomplish. So again, Disney is valuing masculinity over femininity because the male animal psychics are more successful when acting out masculine behaviors. So in conclusion, uh, as a child, I grew up dreaming of becoming Ariel. <laughs> I had the Little Mermaid book bag, the Ariel bicycle, and I dreamed of finding my Prince Eric who would make me happy. And I really thought this fantasy would bring me happiness because it did so for the princesses that I idolized. However, as I transitioned into adulthood, I realized that this happily ever after that's dependent on a male, whether it be a prince or an animal sidekick, actually limited my ability to be an independent female and a contributing member to society. So just like me, children today are still aspiring to this princess romance ideal, but this fantasy is not real. It's not a true reality and doesn't reflect society. There's no princesses as CEOs. There's only princesses living in a castle with their animal sidekick that's a male. So I ultimately find it disturbing that Disney ha has not changed
to address these current concerns, but he still continues to reflect this idea of valuing masculinity over femininity that is hidden through that dimension of the animal sidekick. Any questions? Well, actually, Frozen is an old fairy tale. It's just it's the Snow Queen, that's what it's called. But each of, so I did, with my research, I did a section before each film about how it compares to the original story it was based on. And in each example, Cinderella, The Little Mermaid, Mulan, and Frozen, Disney directly added the animal sidekicks. There was no animal sidekicks allowed in the films. They weren't included. So what happened was Disney is directly adding those animal psychic roles, so they're directly adding all the themes of patriarchy, of male dominance that is seen. And in reference to Frozen, in the original story, the Snow Queen, the Anna figure, she actually has a reindeer animal psychic, and the line says um, that due to her innocence, she had control over both males and animals. So she really had that animal sidekick, but Disney changed it so that she wouldn't have that control or leadership over a male animal sidekick, and again gave it to Kristoff, the male prince figure. So they directly changed that to address those common themes. Um, uh, I did look at, I looked at every princess film before I narrowed down my selection to four because I just didn't have enough resources to cover all the films. But interesting with Aladdin, because she does have the animal sidekick, the tiger, but, and that was in the 90s, I believe, when that came out. But it's interesting, maybe they are writing it out, but it's still present in Frozen, which is their newest film. So yes, it wasn't there in the 90s, but it's still there in 2013. And what's interesting about Frozen, yes, they don't give um, an animal sidekick to the princesses, but they give Olaf, who can be seen as a sidekick role. Um, and I didn't have time to explore Olaf, but it's interesting that um, Olaf is created by um, Elsa, so it's kind of seen as an extension of her uh, power, but it's also another thing you can look at is how whether she, Olaf is an extension of her power or she's just not allowed as a female to have full power. So Olaf has to be there because Olaf rescues Anna in the end by getting her away from the castle. So it's like those ideas are still present, but maybe just not strictly in an animal sidekick role. As you looked at all the princess films and making your decision, I'm curious, were there any female animal sidekicks? and? How did that play into your choice of? So in all of, I think there's 12 or 11 Disney princess films. There's only one group of 
female animal sidekick, which was that female mice group in Cinderella. And there's actually, in the whole film, there's not even a no names given for them. It's just female mice. And I read a book that said there's four names for the female mice, but it's never seen in the films. So really, there's only one example of a female animal sidekick, and all they do is be able to be in that domestic sphere. They can't leave the attic, and they can only clean and sew with Cinderella. So it's really a limited female role. seems as though the, the focus uh, in the introduction was mentioned that you focused on a line from an article, I guess, about the animal sidekick, and clearly you honed it so that it's an explicit topic, but I, I guess my question is, how much literature really was there out there? I mean, how did you dig out or ferret out what was said about the this, this sidekicks, or was it really you had to simply take methodologies and, and historical analysis and things at those tools and apply them to this topic. You know, how original is this research? Um, well, most of the research done on the princesses are looking at the princesses and the princes, like just them. They don't really look at the animal psychic interactions. A few of the research, so if the research article was 30 pages, there would be two lines about the animal psychics saying that all the animal sidekicks were involved in the rescue scene, or they helped in this way. And the majority of the research was showing how the animal sidekicks are usually just seen for comic relief, or just to be a background figure. Um, they, one of the quotes was like, uh, a mute background figure. That's how they're described. So really, the research on the animals, the majority is just one to two sentences per uh, article. And also, when they look at animals, in the Disney franchise, it's usually looking at um, The Lion King, where it's all animals. But really, I want to look at that human-animal interaction. So it's pretty nuanced, my research. program. Thank you so much and may I present you with this 2016 Thousand Scholar Award. So as Dr. McKenzie said, we began working on this about a year and a half ago um, in our undergraduate nursing research option. Um, um, and at the same time I was in my maternal and child health clinical rotation um, and we had to write a clinical research paper and I was focusing on gestational diabetes. So 
this project kind of came out of my research on that paper. And as we dove into that research, we found that there was a lack of um, literature in the research on the connection between gestational diabetes and nursing interventions and how those interventions um, can influence the um, offspring and the children to come from that. So as we had, she had said, we focused on the intergenerational cycle of obesity. And this cycle that we um, found the literature on and uh, many of the articles pointed to this cycle, it talks about how that a child born to an overweight or obese woman is in a way almost programmed. And when that child grows up and it goes into adulthood, they have factors and features that will perpetuate the cycle and often lead to overweight and obese children when they have them themselves. Um, so the aim of the article and what we worked on was to describe and discuss the cycle, the factors that impact the cycle and where along the cycle the nurse can intervene and which interventions that the nurse can provide to combat the cycle throughout the whole thing. So just as some background, in terms of childhood obesity in the US, over the last decade, the childhood rate of obesity has actually doubled and the adolescent rate of obesity has tripled. And this is an area of major concern as a child or an adolescent who is overweight or obese carries these features as they grow up. And um, it extends into the, their adulthood and places them at greater risk for insulin resistance, cardiac disease, and early mortality. And even with the current research and policies and everything going on right now, it continues to rise. And this was the 2009 data. Um, but throughout that time period, there had been interventions, there had been programs to combat the cycle. So as I had said, the current research and policy really focuses on the things that we hear about, like lunch programs in schools to focus on the diet of the children or added physical education for the students. Um, but where we found the gap in the nursing literature was really focused on this prenatal environment, that yes, you can attack the cycle once they are in school and once they are possibly already overweight or obese, but we decided that there needs to be more of a focus on what happens in the uterus and when the child and the fetus is developing because there is a sense of programming at that point in the stage of development. So again, the goal of our manuscript was definitely to address this gap um, and focus on the prenatal environment um, and how it impact, impacts the childhood and adolescent cardiometabolic health. And we definitely feel that this intergenerational cycle has impacted the rise and there needs to be more focus as, even with the added lunch programs, the added focus on um, childhood health, um, there definitely needs to be something focused on early on. So the main part of our research, we found a lot of the bio articles or the physiology articles to focus on um, the lasting impacts of the prenatal en environment, but we didn't find any nursing. So that's where we wanted to bridge the connection between the science and the backing of it and the nursing education and research so that there can be some interventions to um, go off of earlier on. So when woman is overweight or obese, um, there is some degree of altered nutrient metabolism. And this could be glucose, impaired glucose tolerance, uh, gestational diabetes or hyperlipidemia. And it's also ad, um, exaggerated with, with their um, maternal adiposity. And these differences in the altered nutrient metabolism, they attribute it to what it's called, they call them epigenetic changes. So everybody thinks about genetics as being set in stone, but the environment definitely plays into it. So the genes may not change themselves, but the way they are expressed are changed based on 
the um, environment that the fetus is grown and developed in. So this impacts the fetal development and later on um, it will impact their body mass composition across the lifespan. The second point that we found with the overweight or obese woman who is pregnant, there is um, impaired glucose metabolism. So this fetus is developing in an environment that is hyperglycemic, so there's more sugar and nutrients available to the developing fetus. Um, and multiple things can happen when there's too much sugar or too much nutrients in um, the uterus and when it's developing. One thing can happen, it can be too large for gestational age, as it just get, it has too many resources that's growing that it grows to be too big. Also, when there are added nutrients, it can impair the blood flow to the fetus, so it could either be way too large or not get enough blood flow and be way too small. Um, the third thing that could happen is it could be normal size, but there could be other um, less noticeable um, consequences of this hyperglycemic environment. And a lot of the literature that we read focused on what they called the obesogenic phenotype. So it doesn't change the genetics at all. The genes are the same, but there's something about these kids that develop in the hyperglycemic environment that um, you can kind of clump them together and see some trends. So these children tend to gain weight rap more rapidly than their peers. They're more likely to have an increased appetite, um, more likely to be more sedentary than their peers. And I found it interesting that they often have a preference for foods higher in sugar and fat. Um, so their genes might be the same, but because of the hyperglycemic environment, they see these trends and things that will predispose them to obesity and cardiometabolic consequences later on. Um, one of the things that was noticeable about it is these kids have um, leptin resistance, and leptin is a hormone that tells your body when you're full, um, and they are resistant to that. So once the, this child will grow and develop, they may have less of that ability to tell when they are full and then overeat and then that can perpetuate the over the child to be it can cause the child to be <laughs> overweight and obese and the final trend that we saw when we were looking at the literature um, was that there was fetal cardiovascular dysfunction so you think of somebody who's overweight or obese having the cardiac complications later on in life but they actually have found um, evidence to support that the children develop that our fetus is developing in this hyperglycemic environment. They can see endothelial dysfunction, increased cholesterol, increased lipid metabolism early on, um, also myocardial hypertrophy and um, lipid deposition in the arterial walls early on. So this already shows that the hyperglycemic environment, the increased nutrients in utero early on will affect the development. So even as insignificant as it may seem as the amount of sugar in the uterus as the fetus is developing, it has a lifelong impact. And this is part of where we wanted to focus on the cycle because the, it's important for the nurse to focus on it early on because it might be too late as the child's already in school and the lunch programs and the education. So the children are like more likely to have higher BMIs, faster BMI growth, um, increased levels of adiposity, and more central adiposity than their peers. The adolescent is more, uh, has an increased risk of obesity, insulin resistance, and metabolic syndrome. And then finally through adulthood, um, they have a lower insulin sensitivity, um, are more likely to be overweight and experience metabolic syndrome than their peers. So again, that these, the environment that the fetus is developed in programs them and it, la it follows them throughout the life. 
expand. So if we can inter intervene and interact early on, we'll be better off rather than combating it later on in the cycle. So once we kind of understood what the cycle was and what the prenatal environment did to the cycle, we looked at some of the factors that influenced the cycle along the way. So the first one would be the maternal diet. So diet is definitely um, important in regulating maternal weight and glucose. But beyond that, it directly impacts the metabolic <coughs> outcomes of the offspring. For example, a diet high in f fat and fructose has shown to have increased fetal mortality and adiposity. A diet deficient in zinc and vitam vitamin B12 is associated with increased body weight, hyperinsulinemia, le leptin resistance, and dyslipidemia. And so as the diet may be important it, for the mother in terms of weight gain, and her own health, it also is important as that can contribute to the programming of the metabolic system of the fetus. The second point we looked at was maternal physical activity. Again, physical activity can be a way to restrict weight gain and keep the mother healthy, but especially in the first trimester, it has been associated with a decreased risk of gestational diabetes and can prevent this hyperglycemic environment with too many nutrients for the fetus. So the research has suggested that the regular physical activity can prevent against the birth weight extremes and these complications of the developing fetus. And the exercise of the mother actually can impact the cardiovascular system of the fetus. And they can have better cardiac autonomic control based off of what the mother does to exercise. And the biggest point of research that we found when looking at the cycle and where to intervene and combat the cycle was definitely breastfeeding, as breastfeeding is a special window for metabolic programming of the infant or newborn. And breastfeeding contributes to an early regulation of calories as it's, they consume fewer calories and protein and there's less adipose deposition. Also, the, as I was talking about leptin, that hormone that tells you when you're full, they get that from their mother through the breastfeeding so that's an important key ingredient as the newborn is growing and developing, that they get that hormone before they can produce it themselves. And they also have found some connections between newborns who are breastfed and, breastfed and infants who are breastfed and their flavor preferences. They say that those who are breastfed are less likely to consume processed foods high in sugar and fat and have a preference for more fruits and vegetables, which I found very interesting. So... As with anything, we can't attribute everything with uh, obesity and individuals being overweight to their prenatal environment. There's always the extra environmental factors and everything else that comes along with it. So it is kind of hard to tease that out as the mother and the infant or the child grow up in the same environment, most likely. So they're often exposed to the same environmental factors, the same socioeconomic factors. If the mom isn't safe to go outside and go for a run, the child probably isn't likely to go outside and play on the playground and get their exercise. Also, if there's not the healthy supermarket down the street, the mom can't eat a healthy diet and neither can the child. Um, so it is, although we did note the importance of the prenatal envi environment, we did also take the cautionary note that there are a ton of other things contributing to it. But with that in mind, there is also the opportunity to intervene when the mother is pregnant and before that to kind of combat the cycle. So I had said that the better understanding of the cycle can allow the nurse to intervene before conception, prenatally, pre postnatally, and beyond that. 
And also, with a better understanding, we can understand as a nurse when to pull in the nutritionist, when to pull in the dietitian, and get that interdisciplinary involvement that can be really beneficial to the patient and their children. So preconception, we took a look at the statistics for overweight and obese women who are in the childbearing age, which we kind of, we found the data for the 20 to 39 year of age range. And for women who are 20 to 38, about 56% of them are overweight and 32% of them are obese. So taking a look at this and understanding that not all pregnancies are planned and that there is this high rate of obesity and overweight individuals, that it's important to begin the education and make that connection between the mother's health and the child's health so that even if they're not necessarily planning it then, they may be more motivated to get in shape and get themselves in the best possible shape and condition that they can be if they do end up getting pregnant. Um, and it has shown that women who enter pregnancy with a healthy cardiometabolic practices are likely to continue that to practice that throughout their pregnancy. It's what they know, it's what they've been doing. So if you can get the woman to practice that early on, it'll make the pregnancy go a lot smoother. In addition, it's important at that point, just in general, to advocate for neighborhood safety and access to the healthy food options. The nurse can interact with the individual in the office and the appointments when they are in contact with them, but making sure that there are the resources available to support any woman um, in their health is important, so making sure it's safe for them to go on a run outside, that they have access to the exercise facilities that they would need, and also that there are fresh fruits and vegetables available to them. Prenatally is definitely the time when we found in the literature that the woman is most open to change. Uh, they are open to lifestyle modifications and counseling about as they're coming into this huge change in their life, they may be more willing to accept the changes and the recommendations. So it's important in these visits prenatally to review the guidelines and the healthy guidelines with women. The, inter the Institute of Medicine has certain weight gain recommendations based on the women's weight before pregnancy. So reviewing these in the prenatal visits, making sure that they are on track to keep them in health that they need for the child. Also to assess the diet and physical activity and kind of go over the exercises that are safe in each trimester. And also reminding them that they don't necessarily have to go to the gym, but walking down the street or going up some stairs will definitely contribute to their health and making that connection again between that their exercise will help them, but it also will help the child cardiovascularly and metabolically later on. And definitely in this sort of environment, bringing in physical therapy if there are muscle complaints and using the other resources so that the woman feels like she has the support. We also, in discussion of this article, we talked about uh, the role of the partner and understanding that the women, if they have the partner there with them, often resemble each other in terms of weight and physical exercise habits. So asking the partner to come and support them in the meeting so that you can get them both on track so that they can both be on the same page. And if one is doing one thing, that the other will support them in that um, and just having the extra backup. And finally, the, in the prenatal period, it's important to talk about the postnatal plans. This time, at this time, they don't have a crying newborn. They're not already dealing with everything else. So it's important at this point to talk about their plans to breastfeed, talk about any barriers to that, um, and also make them aware of the fact that the breastfeeding is the most effective and least expensive intervention 
that is associated with this decreased obesity later in life. Um, and also work with them on length of maternity leave if there are any issues with finding the pumping room at work or anything like that that, that would cause them to stop breastfeeding earlier on. Um, And then, again, that this counseling in this advocating for the breastfeeding doesn't just stop when the child is born, but beyond that, in, in advocating for the employer and community support, again, of breastfeeding places where they can pump and make it easier for them to continuing on as they go back into their workplace. Um, and the nurse should be aware that they are added support system for the woman as she adjusts to life with a newborn and trying to balance breastfeeding and going back to work. At the same time, once a child is born, it's important to assess the nutritional patterns and family environment around eating, because many of these things can contribute to the child's attitude towards food, views on food and exercise and all of that. And mothers definitely have the highest impact on the nutritional environment, as they're often with a ch child, and there's a strong correlation between the diet of the mother and the di diet of the child. So some strategies to promote healthy eating habits are eating together as a family, avoiding screen time during meals, avoiding fast food and takeout if possible. And we found some literature on avoiding the clean your plate mentality because it teaches a child to ignore when they're full. If you have to clean your plate but you're full halfway through, you're going to still finish the plate. So it's important to avoid that messaging, teach them about what it feels like when you're full, when you should stop eating, when you should keep eating, and also to avoid using food as a reward because then it teaches them to address food in a different way. So in terms of future research, we found um, that although there we could find a lot of the bio and physiology research behind this intergenerational cycle of obesity, there wasn't much in the nursing field. So definitely finding and doing more research on how these interventions and intervening at different points of the cycle influence um, the rates of obesity and overweight individuals. Also, looking at the result of glucose control in the gestational diabetic mother, as that what, that's what my original project was going to be on, um, and looking at how that tight control of glucose in the mother does influence the child later on. Also, degree to which women adhere to the education and interventions. You can teach all you want, but how much are they actually paying attention? We need effective ways to get them to understand and to practice this and to make sure that they really get what we're teaching them in the appointments. And also, the influence of the partner. There was a lot of discussion of the mother's diet, the mother's physical education, but kind of taking a look at a third party and how they could be useful in combating the cycle. So our final project, um, it was accepted for the Nursing Women's Health Journal, so it'll be published in June, but they changed it a little bit and entitled it The Intergenerational Cycle of Obesity and Its Implications for Nursing Care of Childbearing Women. Um, so we definitely found that as we were going, it was interesting for me as I began the research and had a goal in mind that there just wasn't anything there. So kind of understanding that there are those gaps in the literature and that's really where the focus needs to be. Um, so definitely for future research, looking at how the nurse can really combat the cycle and work to prevent obesity, especially in children early on, um, and not waiting until the school-based programs.
We did not look at that specifically, but definitely when we were discussing and looking at the diet modification and looking at involving the dietitian and the nutritionist and recommend, re recommending things for certain individuals, taking the culture into consideration and making a plan that best fits that individual, recognizing that they are going to be different compared to their peers, even if they are the same physically in their pregnancy, looking at what culturally is best for them as a healthy option for meals and best fit for them for educate or exercise-wise. Um, you said you looked at the, at least I, I understood you to be looking at the age group 20 to 38. Yes, and I was certainly. just wondering, I, I would think that it would be something that the nurse would need to be in tune with is um, perhaps the age that the person is, but mm -hmm. also be an influencing factor. So if, you know, if they are getting pregnant at 20 versus getting pregnant at 38, mm -hmm. and also, you know, maybe a less healthy lifestyle, and, and the other contributing factor that I was thinking with the, the choice of age is the number of children that they may, mm -hmm. or may or may not already have. So I was just wondering if you looked at some of those. I know you've talked about some other contributing influences, but that age and family composition, I guess I was wondering if you looked at that. We didn't see anything on that necessarily. Um, I'm sure that it does if it is the first pregnancy. If it is the third, they'd also have more of history on the individual and what has occurred with those children earlier on and kind of take that into consideration with the health history on the mother. Um, and I think it definitely would contribute to it. And definitely the age. I think that in providing the education based on the age, understanding where that person is in life, if it's a teen pregnancy, you might cater the education a diff little differently than if you're talking to a 39-year-old woman who has had a full career and has had three children before that. So I think that we didn't find any literature necessarily, but I definitely think that those would be contributing factors to the cycle. Uh, for the breastfeeding aspect um, of the study, I know you said it contributes and it helps with the decrease in obesity in children and everything, but did you see or find anything or even discuss like there is definitely a time frame. I'm not necessarily sure on the exact number, so I don't want to say it wrong. Um, but definitely the focus on the woman as she goes back to work, because she would have the certain maternity leave. But even if she can't, if she stops breastfeeding because she has to go back to work, it might not be long enough to definitely get all that programming. The infant may not have that leptin hormone developed in them before they stop receiving it from the mom, or there may be a change in like what they're receiving from the mom versus what they're receiving from their baby food or the food they're started on. Um, so I think the literature definitely emphasizes the importance of continuing um, and focuses on when the mom goes back to work. We found a lot of review articles on like the physiology of the cycle, but we didn't find any review of the literature or anything that was widespread over nursing interventions. Because as I was working on my paper for gestational diabetes, I was supposed to focus on nursing interventions to prevent gestational diabetes and to limit the consequences of it. And I had found a really hard time of finding 
the nursing aspect of it. I could find a lot of the science behind it and what the science of gestational diabetes will do to the infant, but nothing necessarily about where the nurse can intervene in specific interventions for the nurse, which I found very interesting. Yeah. I think that it is, because it is, contrib it, it's more complicated than just saying like, you can't necessarily point to like this gene changes and causes this, or this happens because of this. It's more of a whole bunch of factors influencing the fetus in the time of development. And I'm not sure if it has been out long enough for nurses to kind of get on that and focus on it yet. But there's definitely focus on the mother and there's focus on the child obesity, but nothing about the connection between the two and looking at the development in utero, if that makes sense. So we found a lot of education for the mother, but not necessarily for the mother and the fetus connected. I definitely agree because you don't necessarily in those visits or in those interactions with the younger individuals, you don't necessarily have to state that when you get pregnant or if you're planning on getting pregnant, but you can just like plant the seed that there is the connection. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not thinking about now, maybe later, um, but it's also a point where they may not be more as overwhelmed as they are mm -hmm. in the prenatal period, so they may be more open to it at that point as well. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. for undergraduate research and fellowships and the honors program. I am Thank pleased you. to present you with Thank this award. You. Thank you. Um, hello, everyone. Thanks, Dr. Bowen, for that wonderful introduction. Um, and once again, thank you so much to all my advisors. Um, in conceptualizing this project, <laughs> it took a couple months, and I um, met with various departments I met with, nursing, um, art history, sociology, uh, GWS, IGIS. Uh, so it's really been a, a team project, I feel. Um, so to start with, uh, the idea behind this project came when I uh, was watching the PBS series called The Midwife uh, <laughs> with my grandma and my, and my mother. Um, and I noticed, uh, a very profound system of healthcare there in which uh, these female midwives are living within the community, they're serving the community, and there's this profound sense of solidarity, but also uh, cradle to grave healthcare. Um, and that led to questions on uh, why kind of the disappearance of the midwife uh, within the space of the United States. Um, there is kind of a a continuation of that with, with the nurse midwife, which is a new thing in the past decade or so. Um, but really, over the past century, the midwife has uh, kind of disappeared from the landscape. Um, and that also led to questions on uh, if the midwife has disappeared, 
who is controlling that space um, and what does that imply about women? Um, so as I began to survey literature, um, feminist literature mainly on childbirth and on pregnancy, I noticed uh, there was kind of a distrust of the institutions of science, of government. Um, so rather than performing a social st uh, science statistic anal statistical analysis uh, over pregnancy and childbirth, I decided to um, look at artwork. And for me, artwork really enabled women to practice agency, practice resistance um, in a way that was a little less biased. Um, so this methodology became interesting uh, as I further delved into the literature, um, particularly due to recent psychology studies on visualization and how a pregnant mother's imagining the fetus um, links to maternal fetal attachment and what that says about uh, the future health and progression of the child. Um, it became interesting as well with research studying how art can be a platform for the performance of agency um, to resist colonialism um, and various other oppressive forces. Um, so my, my thesis for this uh, paper became, be, uh, is now through an analysis of pregnant space in contemporary artwork. This paper aims to highlight critiques of pregnant embodiment within the United States, but also to underscore the use of art by women as an instrument for agency and empowerment. Um, so in composing this, I broke it into two parts. Part one is the theoretical framework. So I created three lenses uh, with which to analyze the artwork, and I wanted it to kind of tease out the critique of society and tease out the agency that these women were practicing. Um, so the first is pregnancy as public space, second is pregnancy as medical space, and the third is pregnancy as an unruly space. And then in part two, I analyze artwork. Um, chapter four is on Louise Bourgeois, chapter five is Wingachi Mutu, and chapter six is Frida Kahlo. So here is kind of a brief outline of the theoretical lenses that I composed. Um, so I compiled a lot of literature, um, philosophy, anthropology, uh, feminist literature, uh, history, sociology, um, and placed them into these, to these three lenses. So uh, for a brief overview, for the public space, I look into discourse regarding ultrasound, um, what are the critiques? What are the benefits of ultrasound? How is that uh, opening up the way we view pregnancy and the way uh, government uh, or medicine is allowed to survey pregnancy? Um, I also looked into Foucault's theories of governmentality, so how uh, science isn't ne necessarily a neutral force, how we are shaping bodies, how we can control bodies. Uh, through these medical technologies. Um, I also look at public health policing. So this kind of ties into Molly's presentation right before me, which there are great benefits, but I think we also have to be very critical um, 
of, of those policies, how they're culturally competent or not culturally competent. Um, and looking at pregnancy as a medical space, I go through a brief history of midwifery and obstetrics um, to kind of figure out what, what happened in the United States. And, and what seems to have happened is that uh, obstetrics historically became a method for uh, the patriarchy to control female bodies. Um, that has changed and, and progressed as we continually uh, change the medical system, but there is that historical legacy. Um, so I kind of look at what does that say about pregnancy now. Um, I look at various birth models, one, one such being the technocratic birth model, which um, anthropologist David Floyd points out, um, and that discusses how science, government, um, the patriarchy all inform the way we practice birth now. Um, and I think this is particularly profound when thinking about the fact that birth never used to take place in a hospital, um, only on rare occasions. And now within the space of the United States, it only occurs for the most part in a hospital. And that's, that's not the case globally um, where midwifery and, and home births are still practiced. Um, and then finally, I look at how uh, the medicalization of childbirth becomes a tool of the patriarchy and a tool of the empire uh, historically in shaping and crafting bodies and culture. Uh, finally, looking at pregnancy as an unruly space, uh, I used Freud as, as my framework here and how he defines the uncanny. So I look at uh, repetition, how pregnancy is a double of, of the mother, um, how it's a foil to the masculine body, um, especially this tight, efficient uh, body. Um, and then finally, how it's uh, a monstrous, uh, body that's very unusual. Um, and Freud defines the uncanny as fear that arises when the familiar becomes unfamiliar. Um, so that was kind of the background within that lens. Um, so for the next part of the presentation, I'm gonna go through three pieces and I'm just gonna use one lens for each piece just for the sake of time. Uh, but within my thesis, I'm actually able to apply all three lenses to all of the works that I discuss. Um, so first is Louise Bourgeois. Um, she's a French-American artist. She immigrated um, to New York in her early 20s, um, and since then has created a number of works um, within the contemporary art scene. Um, and the paintings I'm showing, it's a collection of 11 entitled Pregnant Women. She actually painted these in her 90s. Um, so in her 90s, she re revisited this theme of motherhood and maternity, um, which is particularly interesting. Um, so for this presentation, I'm looking at this piece of art, or these, this collection of art, uh, through the public lens. Um, so. As you can see, the, the fetus is visible in all of these pieces. Um, she uses just a very thin wash of color, if anything. Um, and this allows the public or, or the viewer, us essentially, to access inside of the womb, um, making it an inherently public space. Um, it's also interesting because the way she 
uh, paints the body. Uh, there's no identity, there's no face, and nor are there arms. She really just picks out um, the breasts and the womb as if those are the most important parts um, of the body. And uh, when I was looking through some, like the history of, of public health promotion posters um, regarding pregnancy, this often seems to be the body shape that is used, um, which is an identityless uh, image. Um, and I think that says interesting things about what the pregnant space becomes. Is it an individualized uh, personal experience or are we trying to shape the body into something else? Um, and the feminist critique over surveillance and public policy is that it's seeking to normalize pregnancy, it's seeking to normalize or shape women um, and the child once born because once the child is born, uh, the child is a citizen of the state. Um, and Foucault really delves into that idea um, when he points out that government institutions are not neutral, that medical institutions are not neutral. Um, this is particularly clear in his theories on biopower and governmentality. Um, and I think this can also be seen in this collection as it is uh, repetitive, as all the bodies end up kind of the same shape, the same prototype. Um, but there is a sense of resistance in this collection also. Um, and I found that in the depiction of the fetus, um, which looks kind of like a doll or a, or a child's drawing. Um, and in this way, uh, I noted that Louise Bourgeois employs the visualization or the imagining of her fetus. So rather than showing uh, something that's very scientifically or uh, physiologically correct, she kind of just sketches in what she thinks and, and therefore she takes control of this space again. Um, next I show Frida Kahlo and her critiques of the medicalized birth. Um, so a brief uh, background on Frida Kahlo, she endured uh, an accident pretty early on in life in which she um, had injuries to her pelvis, spine, vagina, and leg, and this left her unable to carry a child to term. Um, she endured num numerous miscarriages, numerous abortions because of it. Um, it's also too important to consider that during the time that Kahlo was alive, the Mexican government was extremely unstable, and in an effort to stabilize the government, uh, they tried to construct women um, by reinforcing the rigid traditional gender roles. Um, so motherhood became an extremely important uh, ideal for the woman. Um, so in this painting, she displays her own self-portrait uh, in which she experienced miscarriage while in Detroit. Um, she lies on a hospital bed, Obviously, there's blood everywhere, uh, tears rolling down her cheek, and these symbols uh, float around her connected to the red string, um, which could be symbolic of the umbilical cord. Um, she paints herself very isolated. Uh, she looks lonely. Um, and this really describes her experience while in the hospital. Um, some of the symbols um, denote her... Uh, biography, but I think for, 
through this lens, the most important symbol is this uh, more mechanical looking uh, piece, um, with, which um, in addition to the industrial background really uh, hones in on Davis Floyd's idea of the technocratic birth in which uh, the body is a piece of machinery that goes into the hospital as a, as a repair shop. Um, and furthermore, Kahlo in interviews uh, critiques hospitalization in the same way, that she feels dehumanized in this space. Um, she feels there's no sense of community. Um, and she feels trapped. So for her, um, and for her pregnancy, medi medicine cannot offer the answer that um, explains why she's unable to carry a child to term. Um, but for, for me, the agency here was the fact that she displays a failed pregnancy during a time when uh, pregnancy forged or fashioned the ideal mother. So she's critiquing the Mexican government or this idea of, of constructing the female um, by saying, I can't be the ideal female. I, I cannot carry a child to term. And thus, she subverts the system um, practicing art instead. Um, and finally, uh, this piece I will look at through the unruly lens. So this is Wangachi Mutu. Uh, this is her piece, Ectopic Pregnancy. Um, it's important to note she is um, an immigrant from Kenya. Uh, she grew up in post-colonial Kenya. Um, and a huge uh, theme within her work is displacement and diaspora. So she utilizes collage in order to display this theme. She cuts up pieces of uh, uh, magazines, even pornography, and, and places them in new ways, uh, suturing them together. Uh, in this piece, an ectopic pregnancy medically is uh, a pregnancy that is out of place. It doesn't attach to the uterine wall. Um, and I think that portrays a very interesting notion, especially when this is uh, a black pregnancy or a or a black body. Um, and that connects to a lot of scholars who have uh, critiqued how uh, society, uh, I guess, looks at black pregnancy, um, saying that there's discrimination birthing while black, um, mothering while black, et cetera. Um, when you first look at this painting, it, it appears to be a face. You can see the eyes, the bloody mouth. Um, it's very monstrous. Upon closer examination, though, it's actually the female anatomy. Um, so you have the vagina here, you have the uterus or the womb, the fallopian tubes, um, intestines up there. Um, so part of Freud's idea is um, being afraid of the, of the body being arranged out of place, um, of monstrosity. Um, and I think that's really highlighted in this work where she literally makes a monster out of female anatomy. Um, but in the same way, she seems to reclaim uh, the trope of an unruly um, black female um, or of diaspora. Um, all right, so to conclude, um, 
within these works of art, there's a, there's a critique, there's a subversion of social structures, um, and that thus demonstrates resistance and agency. Um, for this presentation, that can be seen in Bourgeois, who demonstrates a visualized fetus, for Kahlo, uh, who critiques hospitalized childbirth, and um, for Mutu and her ectopic pregnancy. Um, for me, this, this demonstrated a lens that could be applied to a number of works. Uh, I had a number of other pieces that I would have loved to um, analyze in this light also. Um, and it really gives voice to, to women, to women artists, to the creative potential of pregnancy that I think is overlooked in some ways when we analyze things through medical research or through uh, public health statistics. Yeah, so any questions? <laughs> How did you like pick the pictures that you wanted to use? Like where did you like maybe before you started your project, did you do a search them out after you had your idea? Um, I came across Louise Bourgeois uh, when I was studying abroad. Uh, she had an exhibition at the Tate Modern that I saw. Um, but yeah, I had to survey a lot of art, um, which was a really fun process, but also took a very long time. And then I had to go through the research and see what could apply where and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it gets tricky, and that's where it gets tricky also saying uh, what is agency, what is not agency. Um, I think within the United States, there is a growing trend um, of birthing centers of midwifery, but it also seems like that is a very privileged trend. Um, so it really depends on your socioeconomic uh, standing many times whether you're able to um, access that care, whether you realize that's available. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't have any specific research to cite, um, but from what, I, from what I read through, that did seem to empower women um, much more than the typical hospital birth. Um, also globally, um, if you look at a number of countries that still have very strong institutions of midwifery, um, they're ranked higher than we are um, for maternal mortality and morbidity rates. That's also challenging to tease out um, because those are often societies that have comprehensive universal healthcare systems, um, so that kind of thing. I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to think of 
education very powerful. Um, do you plan to make your research um, available or accessible uh, or will you publish it? Um, I would love to. I think there is still, I have many critiques of my research at this point. Um, there's a lot of editing and revising that still needs to be done, but um, if possible in the future, I'd love to, love to publish. Yeah, thank you for that testimony, and I, I cover a lot of that uh, idea. Yeah, and that's important, and I think that's kind of a, a huge theme in the work also, is just the empowerment of women um, and taking ownership of, of the pregnant space and who controls it and how they are able to experience childbirth. Um, so that's the agency I'm, I'm trying to highlight, exactly. Um, you've mentioned to me that um, working in the medical that you are some at times exploring in the future. So how do you think working on this project will influence um, your work in the medical context? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm a pre-med student. Um, so this is an interesting uh, project to undergo. And I think at the end of the day, I always want to critique what I love most um, to, to bring back um, a greater understanding, greater perspective. Um, this has made me uh, look at medicine much differently than how I would have at the very beginning of the year. Um, I think historical implications, historical legacies are very powerful. Um, and I think within medicine currently, we just glide over those, we gloss over those. Um, and I think there's still, there's still residue of that, and, and that's necessary to, to tease out. Um, I'm still looking into medicine. I'm also looking into to nursing, into midwifery, maybe. Um, so we'll see. But yeah, it's been, it's been important. I think this project has been important for, for my identity and, and understanding what I want to do. notice any trends 
based on various categories of how the female body was depicted? Yeah, um, I mean, I think along with the, the feminist contemporary art movement, um, we are seeing a lot more of an unruly, uh, kind of powerful body that uh, protrudes into space that is um, bumptious, as my, as my title says. Um, and, and so we see a lot where it's, it's, it's bizarre looking, it's, it's maybe even uncomfortable looking. Um, so I think that's a common trend and that's a way that, that feminist artists or contemporary artists are trying to, to challenge notions of, of gender. Yeah, yeah, I touch on that also in my, uh, in my theory and how we try to control those processes and, and that's uh, essentially um, because they're antithetical to the masculine body type. Um, in the presentation at least, um, it sounds like you kind of bookends the project with Foucault in the first part and Freud in the second part, in the last part. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question was, I mean, obviously the artists that you looked at were women artists. Were there women philosophers who touch on this subject that you <coughs> discovered, or maybe other sociologists or others, uh, scholars that would yeah. highlight um, with Foucault and, and Freud? Yeah, I, I go through a rigor. I go through Chris Dave a little bit, um, Bredotti. That's uh, mainly in the philosophy, but there's also not a huge, um, area in philosophy that I could find at least, um, granted I had very limited time, um, uh, discussing pregnancy and some of the female philosophers that I did look into kind of noted that there's a discrepancy there. Um, but more of those authors that you, just the, the selected list, more of them are women. Yeah. Identify as female, I should say, than, um, than identify as male, I would imagine. Yeah, you're correct. <laughs> Maybe the names that you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, any other questions? All right, thank you. One thing that was not said during her introduction is that Megan has also been a dedicated librarian for like three and a half years, <laughs> and we're going to miss her. So it's a special privilege to give you this award on behalf of the library, the Center for Undergraduate Fellows, uh, Research and Fellows, and the Honors Program. So thank you, Megan. Thank you so much. Congratulations. So thank you, Dr. Angel, for that introduction. So generally, the, so the purpose of this research is to really understand so how companies are actually identifying, piloting, and deploying specific disruptive technologies. And so before we actually get into, uh, so my goal really by the end of this is for all of you to actually understand you know, what that means in the context of today's world. But before going into uh, technology adoption, first I would like to go over just a couple reasons why technology adoption is potentially different today or just technology in general is different. So the first is the fact that the pace of technological change in today's world is much faster than it used to be and it's rapidly progressing and speeding up, fueled by Moore's Law, consumerization, globalization, and just the fact that the path to personal wealth creation is uh, increasingly rewarding uh, technology entrepreneurs. Secondly, the <coughs> cumulative uh, uh, impact of integrated technology 
uh, is rapidly expanding and increasing. And so just think about even just today's world. You know, maybe seven years ago I had a flip phone. Now I have a phone in which I could probably control a drone, this presentation, <laughs> uh, you know, call my parents, check my emails, uh, you know, and even like start my car. And as well as the fact that when it comes to deploying a new technology, it's easier. Uh, and much faster than it used to be. Just think, how many people here have been using uh, Microsoft 365 yet? No? Okay, so essentially, if you guys actually go on the Villanova website now, <laughs> instead of having Word, Word or Excel on your uh, you know, laptops, you can actually just go and access all that online and it'll save into a cloud uh, platform, which makes it a, you know, very different from uh, you know, years previously in which you had to have data centers and all kind of infrastructure to actually support those kind of softwares. As well as the fact that technology today is cheaper and uh, the role of technology in everyday business is increasingly changing and well, increasing. And so the major hypotheses of uh, this research project is that we think that traditional kind of uh, stage requirements driven uh, technology adoption models are changing and actually probably disappearing altogether. And instead, we're hypothesizing that today, uh, you know, professionals are actually adopting technologies faster and less purposely than they previously did. And we think that this is, um, you know, driven by consumerization, cloud computing, and shared governance structures. And that oftentimes uh, you can have, you know, personal technologies become professional technologies overnight, overnight through cloud deliveries. As well as the fact we think that, uh, you know, integrated technology platforms are decoupling um, and that really the whole distinctions between, you know, whether someone is a, you know innovator and they're you know uh, quick to adopt new technology versus a laggard. We think those distinctions are completely going to vanish, and that there'll be completely new uh, you know adoption best practices and models. And so a few examples of this is you know if you look at social media, you know start off with people making Facebook uh, posts or tweets, but you know companies just started exploring all these, and now today with analytics you can actually uh, predict you know, revenues of movies, you know, box office movies to like almost like 95% accuracy rates. As well as, uh, I'm not sure, well, none of you guys probably know this, but it's interesting to see that actually 93% of Fortune 500 companies actually adapted, uh, adopted uh, iPads immediately when they first came out, not knowing wh what exactly they were gonna do with them. And who here doesn't use uh, Uber or, uh, you know, Dropbox to save their files? So, you know, are these, you know, What's, what's happening here in this previous slides, you know, are these anomalies or is it actually precedent? So traditional technology adoption models describe a process that's carefully phased and validated by requirements. And these models have defined the technology adoption process for decades. And, you know, some of them that I, you know, analyzed this past uh, semester, diffusion of innovators, uh, hype cycle, lazy user model, well, and actually going into them, you know, turns out a lot of them are very outdated. But essentially what all, the only thing, the only takeaway you need to know from previous models is the fact that really companies have just a very simple view of technology adoption. Essentially, if they think technology adoption, what they all think about is exactly what I saw in my freshman year in my business dynamics textbook. And essentially, uh, how, uh, you know, technologies are, I mean, are adopted by companies kind of goes into this normal distribution. In other words, if you're an innovator, you know, you're maybe taking on more risk when it comes to adopting a new technology, but you'll potentially have a greater payoff the majority of companies are somewhere in the middle. And the fact that they like it to be out in the marketplace for a little bit, they like to see you know, people make mistakes uh, and, and for that technology to be fully baked before they actually adopt it. But you know, this isn't the case when you think about iPads being adopted by 93% of companies or people just exploring social media or just using Dropbox immediately, right? This doesn't fall into this model. 
Um, so really, you know, the purpose of our you know, project is really understanding, you know, how is it that these new disruptive and emerging technologies are actually adopted? You know, which ones are being adopted? How are they being selected? Who's employing them? How quickly? And why is, are people actually doing this? You know, and does the actual traditional adoption process make sense? So traditionally, uh, to give you a little background, you know, a company will have a certain problem, they'll <laughs> go through some sort of elaborate requirements analysis of trying to match some sort of technology to their, uh, you know, actual business needs, and eventually, you know, they'll have an end solution. But, you know, what we're hypothesizing is instead of this traditional model, due to the fact that you can now deploy technologies instantly through the cloud, uh, um, business unit presidents are no longer fighting each other within corporate governance structures, instead through federated, uh, you know, governance structures, they're now uh, deploying technologies faster, and due to the fact that consumerization, just think people, if they like iPads, if they like Dropbox, if they like using cloud technologies, they're gonna bring them to the office place. So instead, what we're hypothesizing is really companies are taking these new technologies and they're just adopting them, you know, buying them, and trying them out without actually knowing what problems they're necessarily trying to solve. And then from there, they're trying to figure out their requirement needs for their basic business, and, and this will result in the solutions. And so, you know, once they do this, you know, we're also trying to see, you know, how are companies actually, you know, once they have this technology in the top right, you know, how are they actually piloting these programs? you know, how are they actually bringing them into their business. And so traditionally, how companies do this is there's a number of different models. The most uh, common is the system development life cycle, which, uh, you know, I had to memorize back when I worked for Deloitte uh, Consulting this past summer, uh, as well as, you know, you have object-oriented programming, extreme programming. But, you know, do any of these models actually make sense in today's world? So when you think about it, they're all really models that were predicated off of, you know, were followed in the, the 20th century. And if you look at just basic strengths and weaknesses, of the most popular one, which is the SDLC. You see uh, increased development time, increased costs, it's rigid, you know, there's a lot of requirements testing that you have to do up front. And, you know, just if you look at technology trends today, this really isn't, you know, it's not really a match. And so, uh, and if you look at the stats behind that, you know, it's very clear. So just looking at between, uh, you know, I looked at studies from 1995 to 2010. And you can just, the stats speak for themselves. Look, 1997 requirements errors account for 70% of uh, rework for companies. And then later in 2005, flawed requirements trigger 70% of all technology adoption project failures. And, you know, technology professionals know this. And in fact, it's, you know, almost all too obvious. For the average, you know, this is a McKinsey uh, study in 2000. 12, and they found that the actual average, well, let's see, they surveyed 5,000 different companies. They found that the average uh, large-scale technology implementation project actually went 45% over budget, 7% over time, and actually when they measured their predicted ROI of that project versus, you know, what they actually got, they fell short by 56%. Even more alarming than that, actually 17% of all technology adoption projects uh, actually fail so badly that they threaten the entire existence of that company. Uh, came from the same McKinsey article. So, you know, really, what does this mean? Are companies slow to adopting new technologies? Are they using outdated processes that, you know, just don't work in today's world? And, you know, or, and how are they even deploying these technologies or developing them? Are they doing it in-house or are they doing them overseas? Um, you know, that's, you know, what we're trying to figure out in this, this study. And, and really, you know, or really what it could have happened, which we think is actually happening, is companies are probably throwing these old models out the window and replacing them with entirely new approaches to technology adoption. And so I'm sure you guys are all wondering now, all right, so how do you actually figure that out? So what we did is we, first we went over and we, 
you know, analyzed a lot of the old models. You know, if you guys are thinking about that normal distribution curve, you know, I actually found that, that was predicated off of uh, hybrid corn studies in the 1950s, and that actually is what people are all using today, as well as a number of models that just don't have any statistical, uh, you know, evidence of, you know, proof of whether technology is going to work or not work. Um, so what we did, so we analyzed the models, and then we actually conducted these, well, we designed and conducted these surveys that we uh, sent out through the Cutter Consortium. And so with that, um, you know, it's about a 10-minute survey, you know, asking companies everything from what size are you, what industry are you, to, you know, what's your thoughts on technology adoption. And then, so we got back, and essentially it looks like this, very, very, very messy survey data. And since this is a, you know, emerging and disruptive technology project, what we did is we would then analyze this in a, a visual analytics platform, which I'll try to show in a second if this works. Let's see. Um, is there a way I can put the mouse working? Or get, so I have it displayed on this display. I'm trying oh, to display it. Oh. Okay, so essentially, so this is the most basic one. So essentially, you have all the survey data. We can import it into this, you know, analytics engine. And so say, this is just for demographics. So say I want to see, let's see, I have to do it like this. So, uh, you know, for companies that have a tech budget of, you know, let's say $250 million. I click that, and then I can actually see correlations of all the other responses of what people say. And so as you can see, if they have a large tech budget, the majority of them come from a larger company, you know, which you would expect. And then we can correlate this with industry, where they see themselves on the you know, technology adoption model, uh, you know, et cetera. And then we can correlate this to all of our responses. And so uh, you know, rather than go through all of those, let's see, I'll just show you guys pretty much the non-correlated responses, which is just you know, how people are thinking. So these are some of our, our questions. So when we asked all of our respondents, you know, do you actually have a defined process for adopting a new technology? Uh, just look here, no, no and not sure. Sure, 67% of companies actually said they do not def have a defined process at all, which is completely staggering compared to, you know, that was not the case, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and then when you look at it, um, you can see that there's a transitional phase right now. So when we ask them, you know, are you okay with, uh, you know, having technologies first uh, or requirements first then technology or are you okay with the fact of testing out a new technology and then seeing if it actually meets your business requirements? Only about 18% actually said that they were okay with that, but you know this is still more than you know previously expected. So you can see it's kind of at a transitional state right now between uh, whereas most people are kind of stuck in their you know traditional and old ways of going through this elaborate requirements testing. Um, and then so when we asked about shadow IT, and so you know just a little background what shadow IT is. So essentially, shadow IT is any kind of technology that is not approved by the corporate enterprise. So think. All right, you have a document on your computer, you want to put that in Dropbox, but you know, your company is not sponsoring Dropbox for security, anything like that, but you like Dropbox and you like, that's where you like to store your files. So that's shadow IT. And so looking at it, looking at a lot, some, very little, about you know, actually 80% of all of our respondents said that you know, shadow IT influences their technology adoption. So essentially what this means is that you know, a lot of technology adoption today is actually done on a shadow basis. In other words, it's not approved by companies. And so people are doing it anyways, whether or not their, you know, companies or corporation approve of it or not, which is, you know, pretty interesting statistic. And this was not the case, uh, you know, years ago, a couple or even 10 years ago. Um, let's see. So uh, has your company adopted a technology or even a basket of technology without a specific problem or application in mind? 
Only, so about 28% said never, but the majority said often, occasionally, and sometimes. So essentially, people are totally okay with the idea of just taking a technology, buying it, and seeing what happens. Um, then, so, you know, are you okay with the fact that technology should drive requirements? Vary and somewhat. So you have right there about 70% are saying that they are totally okay with having technologies drive those requirements. So essentially, our hypothesis was uh, completely proved valid. And we had over, so we have about 132 respondents on these. And this number is growing daily. These are just screenshots from the last time we looked at the data. Um, and then, though, there's also some fallbacks. So does your organization maintain an ongoing list of promising, emerging, or potentially disruptive technologies? Only about 28% said yes. So in other words, technology is rapidly progressing. A lot of changes are going on, but only 28% of companies are actually tracking it. So in other words, uh, you know, that would be the majority of companies actually don't know what it necessarily is out there, and they're not knowing what the trends are. So how can they actually adopt them quickly? Uh, so this is you know something that you know you'd like to see progress uh, in the future, as well as the fact you know what kind of stems from this is when we asked them, you know, how do you actually hear about te disruptive technologies, the, the answers were all over the place. You know, they have people from third-party vendors, their own personal IT departments, consultants, to from research organizations. So essentially what companies are doing today is they're talking to everyone as possible to try to figure out what the tech trends are, but they don't have any defined process and, you know, it's pretty, pretty chaotic at the moment. Um, as well as the fact when we looked at the drivers, it's, we found that the number one driver was an opportunity to reduce costs. That's the number one reason why a company will adopt a new technology, followed by an opportunity for digital transformation and competitive fear. So that's, you know, just kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, if you hear about all the technology projects that we showed earlier that are failing, uh, you know, there's definitely a stress from the technology standpoint of many companies today. Um, and then when we asked them, you know, what type of emerging technologies are you planning on piloting within the next year or have you piloted? Uh, cloud computing was by far number one, uh, and we're later going to go back into the statistical analysis of you know correlating this to you know industry, company size, um, et cetera. But you know it was also interesting to see uh, you know e-learning was actually above you know 25 percent. So 25 percent of companies are thinking about doing some sort of online training programs, uh, and even more you know kind of interesting. You got virtual reality drones, wearable devices coming in at about 5, 10, 15 percent. So in other words, it's really not just Amazon doing drones today, and it's not just Fitbit doing bracelets. You know, a lot of companies are thinking about these new technologies and how they can actually affect their business models. Um, so, but here's a problem. So how quickly do you plan to pilot an emerging technologies after you hear about it? So the majority, only like about 5% of companies actually said that they would do this within the first month of learning of it. And the majority, as you can see here, is within a year or even more than a year afterwards. So in other words, people have these new technologies. They, they know that they can deploy them right out of the gate and actually improve their businesses, but they're still afraid to do so. They're still waiting a year and they're waiting for other people to do that before they jump on. And at that point, it could potentially be too late. Um, and and other changes that we saw is there, so are there professionals at your companies that specialize in the rapid prototyping of emerging technologies? We actually saw about, you know, 40% of the respondents actually said yes to this. And this is completely, you know, new to kind of the tr traditional process. So that means companies are thinking about this, but, you know, they're, it's not quite there yet. As well as the fact, do you have a formal innovation lab? You know, who here has actually heard of an innovation lab? All right, we've got a couple. So in other words, so innovation labs, you know, there's are actually existing. And so people are trying to pilot these technologies, you know, a rapid space. Uh, it's just not everyone's there to do so. But probably the most uh, alarming stat that we found is when we asked, do 
Do companies actually quantitatively measure the success or failure of their new emerging technology pilots? Only about 35% actually said yes to that. So in other words, right now people are finding out that these new technologies, you know, some of them, are, they're okay with deploying them, they're okay with you know, not doing any requirements beforehand, but you know, people aren't actually measuring this. And so this is you know, a little scary when you think about it in the fact that you know, it, it's still at the end of the day as a business. And so the takeaway from this presentation is really, so yes, technology is progressing at a faster rate today. You know, yes, you, know, you can, don't have to do any of the traditional models, but at the end of the day, you know, companies are still running a business. And so in order to adapt to all these new models, people are gonna have to not only pilot new technologies faster, but they should be you know, actually measuring their ROI on it, because at the end of the day, it's the business in order to you know, stay competitive, um, you know, they're gonna have to you know, keep up with this. And so with that, uh, I'll open up to any questions about this, this project. So disruptive technology would just be any technology that, I guess you'd say, challenges the status quo. So if you think, um, you know, just think like Uber for cab drivers. You know, it's a new app comes out immediately. You know, the price of the you know medallion in New York City you know plummets. You know, within just a couple of months. So any technology that's like that, or you know, cloud computing, uh, it's like instantly flash drives. You know, you don't need it anymore. You can uh, just store everything in a cloud or a Dropbox system. Yeah, either of you guys. You mentioned uh, traditionally it's been a, a normal distribution of adoption of these kind of Yeah. Do you, do you think it's still normal and just sandwiched really short? Or what, what, what is the nature? There's still a distribution. What do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, that's what we're now looking to kind of break down by industry because, you know, that question will completely vary from everything from what your size is to just what te actual technology is it. Um, so, I mean, we're definitely thinking it's totally skewed to the, let's see, to the left. But, um, or no, you call it skewed to the right. Um, and, uh, but you know, it could be just be that this is completely different. So when you think about it, you know, Dropbox comes out, right? So you have, before everyone's putting everything on floppy disks or flash drives, but now you just immediately don't need to do that. All you have to do is sign on, you know, to the Dropbox website and you can store all your files there. And so, you know, we're thinking, you know, why even is there gonna be a distribution like that if it could all just be instantaneous? So then really, the adoption for that really just comes over to the needs of actual companies and you know how quick that they can move. Um, so, but we're you know we're still modeling you know to try to come up with our own curve. Uh, we're still trying to figure out if that's actually going to make any sense or not. Yep. Who, who's actually responding to the survey? Because I think you would get really different um, you know answers if you asked so the IT folks and if you asked the people that are actually the worker bees. Yeah, so if I could, you know, so back in that, you know, that dashboard that I pulled out, I mean, we have people from across all industries, you know, we're asking them, you know, are you a, you know, CEO of a company, you know, vice president, manager, all the way down to an analyst, are you a technology professional in that company, are you a business prof professional, and we're getting respondents from, you know, different countries, you know, all different industries, and, you know, so that's what we're trying to correlate. Um, so, so really everyone. And okay. so we're doing it through, so Cutter, if you've ever heard of a Gartner or Forrester, Cutter yeah. is essentially just a smaller, smaller uh, you know, version of those companies. And so they're the ones that are putting out the surveys as well as um, myself and Dr. Andrew have been putting it out on social media and, and various other websites to get people to respond. Uh, we've even gotten you know, MBA students at Villanova to take the survey as well. <laughs> uh, yep, in back. You may, you may have addressed this, but what 
the influence of a company, say, having a failure with an early adoption, and then that influencing perhaps a, a later consideration <coughs> of, of considering a new adoption in, in the future? So, I mean, what, what we're thinking is the whole idea is when you fail, so there's lots of new technologies that are out there, but the fact that they're you know easier to deploy nowadays and, nowadays and the fact that they're a lot cheaper, we think it's totally fine for companies to actually fail. So in other words, if you do fail, you just fail very quickly, realize that you're failing and move on to the next project. And so if companies are doing that, you know, maybe if it takes them, you know, there's a number, a number of failures, uh, you know, I'm sure they'd get discouraged and then they maybe need to rethink their process or what technologies they're actually adopting. But, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking that really what companies should just be doing is just being very aggressive and, you know, how they companies actually, should be doing yeah, it. yeah, they should be just doing it. And if they fail, that's actually totally all right. Because I'm thinking out loud whether there's some, some influence, whether there's some hesitancy built in then. Yeah, yeah. One or more successive failures of early adoption. Well, there, there's some ways too, like, so even if you think, so, you know, when I was at Deloitte Consulting this past summer, you know, everyone, you know, installs, you know, Oracle, SAP, these large ERP systems that basically run businesses. And the typical, you know, time for companies to adopt those is like, you know, it could be like, one and a half to like three years is actually how long it takes for them to start installing and for the you know finished product to actually be done. And so, and you know, the st statistics I showed from that McKinsey study show that a lot of those fail. They go over budget, and so, but now like due to the fact that you know you don't necessarily even need to be using Oracle or SAP because there's different applications that are you know smaller and more tailored to your business needs that you can really just adopt through the cloud and start using right away. And so, you know, if they failed a lot in kind of those large scale. IT projects in the past, you know, they might actually be more open to, you know, the, the approach that we're suggesting. Thank you. Yep. So, if companies do take this approach to do this rap rapid adoption, yeah. what are the greatest risks that you think they need to watch out for as they, you know, move to that kind of model? I think risks. I mean, there's just a lot of like financial constraints, you know. So they got to figure out, you know, how much they're actually spending on it, and actually, you know, they really do, you know, this last. Uh, slide it. You know, they really knew, do need to be actually measuring the ROI of their products and also like actually knowing what their competitors are doing. As well as the fact, you know, we show the statistics of, you know, majority of companies aren't actually tracking what the new and emerging technologies are. So if you, you know, wait a year, then adopt a new technology, but it turns out you didn't know about technology that was there three years ago, it's actually better for your business purposes, you know, you're going to have a very hard time in, in actually being successful for your company. So it's really just staying completely on top of the trends and you know measuring the whole process throughout is really I think the you know key to success there. Other questions? All right. Well thank you for that presentation. And again it's my pleasure to give you the Valley Scholar Award for 2016. Thank you very much. Thank you. And last but not last my pleasure to welcome our university president, Father Peter Donahue, to make some closing remarks. Well, first of all, Tom, I was uh, grateful that you said you, you fail and then you just move on. <laughs> you know, I think that's a lot about what research is all about. There's the times that you fail, and uh, those of you that have done research realize at times, you know, you work and work and work and work and work, and you, sometimes it doesn't work out, and you just have to keep going. So <laughs> get on it and move ahead. So, uh, but uh, to all of you, to for the work you've done, for the efforts that you've put into this, thank you very much. 
research doesn't always get as uh, big a turnout as the NCAA men's basketball. <laughs> but it is more valuable in many ways uh, because it does, it, as all of you have experienced in your own work, uh, it does have an effect on people's lives and it can change people's lives and it has the potential of changing people's lives long beyond us, long beyond what any of us do. So as we, for the students that have really engaged in this, not only do you do, you do so in terms of the mentorship of your own faculty members who have helped you with these projects or have kind of uh, ignited in you, we like to throw that word around here, <laughs> but ignited in you uh, a curiosity, a wonder, a, a, the ability to kind of delve into something. But more importantly, to, to get up, and I'm, I'm, I only saw Tom's, the end of Tom's presentation, but um, to get up here and be able to explain it and run through it and move through it and, and expect questions that uh, you didn't anticipate, you know, that you know something so well, that you know information so well, that you, you can really kind of feel those questions and help other people discover and understand what you're talking about and understand the position you have on one event or another. So it might not be as classy or as slick or as sexy as some other things that we do here at the Vill Villanova, but it is far more important, I think, than many of the things we do uh, because it has the potential of really impacting to the five of you, one, yes. two, three, four, five. Uh, the, the five of you who presented, thank you very much for your work, your hard work, your research, for your energy in this, for your ability to fail at times, and more importantly, to succeed. So thank you very much, and to the faculty who helped you in all of this, um, I really appreciate it, and to the library staff for sponsoring this. Um, this is the kind of things the library should be doing, you know, so <laughs> this is a wonderful event, and I'm very happy for all of you. Thank you for what you've added to Villanova, even though right now not a whole lot of people may know about it. <laughs> Someday they will. Congratulations.